1 John chapter 5. After expanding on the concept of being born of God, which is introduced in verse 1 and extended through to verse 12, uh, John provides us with concluding remarks, kind of capstone remarks or summary remarks uh, for his entire epistle. They're, they're beautiful. And they, they are a way of, I think, telling us what to do about what has been taught in the previous chapters. And those verses end with verse 21, uh, where it says, Little children, which by now is very familiar. Uh, John has used this throughout this epistle. But then says something very specific as the last statement of his entire epistle, and he has not addressed this directly earlier, he says, keep yourselves from idols, and then closes with the word amen. So we'll, we'll return back to that. Let's go now to verse 1 and learn more about being born of God. John says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So when John says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, he is implying everything that follows that belief in Jesus Christ. Because what follows that belief in Jesus Christ is the covenant pathway that you would enter as a result of your belief in him. So belief in this case, um, we understand that to imply all of those other things because being born of God is most certainly a function of making and keeping sacred covenants. That, that's the only way to have the gift of the Holy Ghost with us. And John will emphasize the gift of the Holy Ghost again in this chapter as he's done in previous chapters. There are kind of two ways to read this next phrase in verse 1, where again it says, Everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. Him that begat can be interpreted as the Father, and that is begotten of him can be interpreted as the Son. And John teaches us throughout in his writings about the relationship between the Father and the Son, and, of course, our relationship with the Father and the Son as well. So that's one way of reading that. There is a Wayment translation that render this, renders this a little bit different. It, it says, everyone who loves the Father loves the child born from him. So whether that is the child with a capital T or whether that is um, a child, um, it, I think, can work either way. Verse 2 says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Now that King James verse where it says the children of God is a little bit more consistent with the Weymouth idea that we love all of God's children simply because we love him. So by, by extension, we, we would naturally love those who are begotten of him. Contrast that, of course, with those who profess a love for others, but who do not love or obey God. And uh, this is a point that John has made previously. Verse 3, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, 
and his commandments are not grievous. This speaks to the idea that keeping the commandments can be restrictive, that it can restrict our liberty or restrict our freedom to keep the commandments of God. A more mature understanding of keeping the commandments teaches us that <laughs> every stick has two sides and when we make any choice there are consequences that will follow uh, and the, the only way to navigate through that properly so that every time we, we like the or every time that the consequence is desirable of the action that we commit it's keeping the commandments of God that that uh, makes that kind of landmine of decision um, as as safe as possible so that we can navigate through that, that minefield of, of choice and consequence. And so they're not grievous if we truly understand what his commandments do for us. Elder Worthland said it this way, Do you love the Lord? Spend time with him. Meditate on his words. Take his yoke upon you. Seek to understand and obey, because this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Quoting um, verse 3, When we love the Lord, obedience ceases to be a burden. Obedience becomes a delight. So again, that is a more mature understanding of, of what it means to keep his commandments and to obey them. Coming back to the idea of being born of God in verse 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? So that's a restatement of that idea uh, that believing in Jesus Christ is what will lead you to becoming born again. And in verse 4, this idea of overcoming the world is, um, is introduced. So I want to go back to that for just a moment before moving more deeply into this passage that extends especially from verses 5 through 8, uh, which there, there's, some, uh, there, there's some thought that, that, that later manuscripts, maybe as late as the 4th century, have some additions to this. So we'll come back to that, but I first want to look then at this concept of overcoming the world in verse 4. It's being equated with being born of God. This um, teaching of, of overcoming the world is something that John was fond of. And remember that this is written after the book of Revelation. John wrote about overcoming the world in the book of Revelation in some very compelling and uh, kind of mysterious ways for us as we read this. And, and so I, I want to read these passages in Revelation chapter 2, first verse 11 in chapter 2. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. So there's the first use of the word overcome. Now verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit hath said unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. 
And then verses 26 through 28 for the third time in which John mentions overcoming. And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father, and I will give him the morning star. Uh, without um, going into in, into detail with these with these verses and, and the meaning of morning star and the meaning of hidden manna, for example, um, that that will be for a later time. Uh, I I want to go back to to John's concept here of overcoming the world and and just show that that's a phrase he was fond of and uh, had a lot to say about in the book of Revelation. It doesn't end there either. In chapter 3 of Revelation, John has three more passages that talk about specific rewards that come to those who overcome. Verse 5 talks about uh, being clothed in a white raiment and not being blocked out of the book of life and having your name confessed before the Father and before angels. And then verse 12 says, he, Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem. And, uh, and I will write upon him my new name, that verse later says. And then verse 21, To him that overcometh, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. So that then is the ultimate gift, the ultimate end, that you can sit down on his throne with him and be reconciled fully in that, may, in that way. So those are six specific references to overcoming in the book of Revelation that predate this phrase in verse 4 of 1 John 5, overcometh the world. Uh, when it says also at the, at the end of that verse, even our faith, again, that, that's to be considered specifically in the context of the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. Uh, it is faith in Jesus Christ that leads one to repentance, that then very naturally leads one to recognize the voice of his servants, to recognize the voice of his scriptures, to embrace saving ordinances from proper priesthood authority. And uh, that is the covenant pathway, as President Nelson is fond of saying, that leads us then to that ultimate destiny of overcoming the world. All right. There are uh, lots of manuscripts of First John, and there are later manuscripts that mm, kind, of, kind of have a fusion of older language and newer language. And so in, uh, in verses 5 through 8, we, we find, um, for example, we find the words in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in earth, and, and that's coming out of verse 7. Um, and that seems to be an addition to what was there originally. And I think what's critical here is our understanding from Restoration Scripture as members of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, uh, that there is a, a very specific doctrine of Christ that is taught to us in the Book of Mormon and is sometimes in more of a fragmentary 
for an implicative implicative <laughs> form um, in the uh, New Testament. And so we rely on our, our understanding of the doctrine of Christ from these scriptures. And when it comes to the task of being born again or, or overcoming the world, we understand very well that the elements of that in our ordinances, especially the sacrament ordinance, have to do with uh, the emblems of his blood and the emblems, the emblems of his body. And we know, of course, that baptism is, is, a, is an act that is, that is um, performed in the water as well. And so we can see fragments here in this, and, and we can talk about these elements of water and blood and spirit. So let's read through those. Um, verse 5 again, Who is he that overcometh the world? but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 6, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ. So that, that is the circumstance under which he was born. He had a mortal birth. that was uh, He was a child that was surrounded by water in the womb. And he had blood flowing through his body, and his mother's blood was shed during childbirth, and he received his blood uh, from her. So uh, he was born by water and blood. Then it says, and it is the spirit that beareth witness, because the spirit is truth. And so there is a, a spiritual birth as well, and uh, each of us are, are, are born into mortality, but before that, we know that we are the spiritual offspring of heavenly parents. So there is, there are references to water, blood, and spirit. Then verse 7, and this is the one that's probably the addition. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Well, if you simply replace the word, uh, the word with the Son, that is very a straightforward doctrine. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost constitute what we refer to as the Godhead, and these three are one. Verse 8, And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these agree in one. So, that's a short discussion of the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and how they relate to this verity called the Godhead that dwells in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We could talk in more detail about this because the spiritual rebirth, I talked about the role of water, blood, and spirit in our mortal birth, but we all have a spiritual rebirth that John is teaching us about here where we are born of God, and there is a water, blood, and spirit component to that. Uh, spiritual rebirth is initiated by baptism, and that, of course, is performed by immersion in water. Uh, spiritual rebirth also has very much to do with blood because it's the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that allows us to be born again. And we think about that high priest in the Day of Atonement who sprinkles blood of a lamb. And we think about the blood of the Savior that was shed for us when we partake of the emblems of the sacrament. 
and renew that. Spiritual rebirth is also um, marked by the presence of the Holy Ghost, which has a cleansing power, and we are given that gift through a priesthood ordinance. Then there is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and that too can be viewed through the filter of water, blood, and spirit. Consider how the Savior's body was pierced when he was on the cross and water uh, flowed from his side, and how the Gospel writers teach us that. I think Luke did. And then his blood. That's, uh, that's very clear. We know that he shed his blood, so that's a way of saying that he died. And we also know, of course, that great that drops of blood came from him in Gethsemane. And then we know that through his sacrifice, <clears throat> and because of his perfect spirituality, then we are able to be born again and receive um, spiritual sanctification. So those are some thoughts about water, blood, and spirit. And um, they, are, they are all consistent with the doctrine of Christ and are understood best when plugged into that framework of understanding that we have been given through the Restoration Scriptures, the Book of Mormon, and the Doctrine and Covenants. Moving on to verses 9 through 12. If we receive the witness of men... The witness of God is greater. We've seen that contrast before in previous chapters. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. So you have this witness of the Holy Ghost in you if you believe in the Son of God and follow his gospel. Verse 11, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And that might make you think of, of the way in which the Savior said he was the way. He is the only way forward to life, and he's the only way forward to eternal life. And uh, that's true in so many senses. Well, we now come to John's concluding remarks. And these extend from verses 13 through 21. He says, These things have I written unto you. And I, I, I take that to mean this entire epistle. So he's, he's coming to an end of his epistle, and he's now offering this, this, uh, these closing statements. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Verse 14, And this is the confidence that we have him in, have in him. There's that reference to confidence again. And he's talked to us about this confidence in an ultimate sense, of standing before God when he appears again, and us being like him. But he's also talked to us about prayer, and Paul, previously in Ephesians, has talked about approaching the throne of grace boldly. And uh, that can be taken in both senses as well. That can be interpreted in the ultimate sense, but it can also be interpreted in the context of prayer. And that's true here as well. Uh, this confidence that we have, have in him can have to do with the ultimate 
a meeting between us and God, but also the daily and moment-to-moment meeting we, we have with him as we pray to him. And so that's what John goes into now when he says, If we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. He wants us to know that. He wants that to be a summary statement of what he's taught so far. Then he says in verse 16, If any man see his brother a sin, uh, uh, sorry, I, I, I'm just stuck on the, those two previous verses and just want to say that there's, uh, there, there, in in the previous chapter in First John, chapter four, there's uh, much more was said about that idea of petitioning the Lord with uh, righteous desires and with the mind of Christ. Okay, verse sixteen: If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death, he shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. That can be a bit confusing. I think it's appropriate to to understand John here as saying that uh, the sin that's not unto death is, is that sin which leads to repentance. Uh, this might be an opportune time to talk about the difference um, in the arithmetic of heaven, as Elder Maxwell used to say, <laughs> Uh, the difference between uh, weakness and sin um, and and how one uh, still, uh, how, how the former, weakness, um, still requires us to be reconciled to God because of our weakness and and, and how, how deliberate sin is different. Um, it too requires us to be reconciled to God, but it's more grievous. And, and that is the type of sin that leads to death. Now, there's a Weymouth translation of this, which is, I think, really helpful. So I'm going to go back to verse 16 and read the Weymouth translation of that. If someone sees his brother or sister sinning, but it is not a deadly sin, he will ask and God will give him life for those who do not commit a sin leading unto death. There is a sin that leads to death, and I do not say that he should ask about that. All unrighteousness is sin but there is sin that is not a deadly sin. Another way uh, to express this might be the term mortal sin. Section 64 of the Doctrine and Covenants, uh, verse 7, says, Nevertheless, he has sinned, but verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, forgive sins unto those who confess their sins before me and ask forgiveness who have not sinned unto death. So I think that one verse brings all of these writings and the King James translation thereof of John into alignment. Now verse 18, We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. So when we're on that trajectory... When we're bound by covenant, the wicked one can still access our flesh by tempting us through that medium. But if we heed him not and we continually repent of our weaknesses and of our sins, 
then we are not sinning unto death and we are on track to that ultimate end where we can be reconciled with him and sit with him again in exalted glory. Verse 19, And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. So there's his last time of drawing a contrast between the world and the society of God. And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So this is John's last reference to both the Father and the Son. Him that is true would have reference to the Father in verse 20. And then he discusses his Son and the relationship between them, then saying that this is the true God and eternal life. And there is much that that implies. So that's a beautiful ending to John's writings, wrapping it all up and discussing this oneness between us, between the Son, and between the Father, living now in unity through the aid of his Holy Spirit and through the gift of repentance and living forever with them as joint heirs. Well, we have this little tag onto the end of that in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Why, why this specific advice to keep yourself from idols at the end of this beautiful, poetic, spiritual writing? My best guess for this is that it's a way to tie John's writings to the teachings of the Old Testament. This idea of idol worship is pervasive throughout the Old Testament. And it, it, is, it is idols that tend to be the form in which temptation presents. And then it is also idols. And, and so in that case, idols can take on many, many different forms. But idols are also the form, in, or they present in the form of, of counterfeit priesthood order and uh, counterfeit gods. So it, it seems like John um, wants to make this final statement uh, as, as, a, as a warning that we're, we're still stuck in mortality and it's still our task to be vigilant, uh, especially having taught about the spirit of Antichrist so much in these writings. We, we've, um, it behooves us then to be, to be vigilant as, as we move forward towards that goal and to not be swayed by those types of seductive teachings or from idols. The Weymouth translation for this last verse says, Little children, guard yourselves from idols.